Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is one of the most visited places in Christianity. It's located in Jerusalem. And tradition tells us it's located on the site where Jesus was crucified and then ultimately he was buried and raised from the dead. And so this site is very significant to Christians. And so you would think because of its significance, because of its importance, that that Christians would be unified around this site, but that is not the case. In July of 2002, a fight broke out there between Coptic monks and Ethiopian monks who have been arguing over the rooftop of that church for centuries. In 1752, six different Christian groups were given control of this sacred site. And the rooftop was initially controlled by the Ethiopians, but they lost control to the Coptic Christians when when a disease hit in the 19th century. In 1970, the Ethiopians regained control when the Coptic monks were absent for a short period of time. And so from that point on, you've had some Ethiopian monks staying on the roof of this church 24-7, and you've had some Coptic monks staying on this roof 24-7. They both are claiming control of the roof of this church. And that takes us to a Monday in July of 2002. A Coptic monk who was sitting there on the roof moved his chair into the shade because it was hot where he was sitting. Some words were exchanged between the Coptic monk and the Ethiopian monk and and the words led to pushes, the pushes led to shoves and before it was all over they were throwing chairs and iron bars at one another. The Israeli police were literally called to restore order. In the end, two monks were detained. They were arrested. Eleven monks were hurt. One of them was one unconscious in the hospital. Another one had a broken arm. I don't know about you, but it sounds like a Baptist church business meeting to me. But this place that is supposed to be a place of unity in the body of Christ is a place of disorder and division. And and that takes me to the eighth one another, the one that we're going to focus on this morning. We are to live in unity, in harmony with one another. Now let's take a moment to review. Remember, the one another's are given to us to show us how we are to treat one another as part of the family of God, how we are to live in relationship with one another as part of people who have been saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so far, we've discovered that we're to be devoted to one another, committed to one another wholeheartedly. We are to encourage one another, to walk alongside one another as we go through life for the purpose of building one another up. We are to accept one another when it comes to the disputable matters of the faith. And there are these matters of the faith that we can disagree on. We don't have to see eye to eye on every issue to walk arm in arm. 
We are to pray for one another. We are to serve one another using the unique gifts and the unique abilities that God has given us. We're to restore one another. When a brother or sister falls into sin, we aren't to look at them and mock them or shoot them. We're to pick them up, dust them off, restore them to the place they're supposed to be in the family of faith. And we are to confess our sins to one another. This accountability is vital if we're ever going to experience healing and freedom in the body of Christ. But this one another, live in unity with one another, is vital if we are going to ever truly live together as a family of faith and accomplish the mission which Jesus has given us. And if your Bibles are open to Romans chapter 15, I want you to listen to what what Paul said in verses 5 and 6. He he said, may God, who gives this patience and encouragement. Now, what patience? What encouragement? The the patience and encouragement we need to, to live together in unity. May the God who gives this patience and encouragement... Help you live in complete harmony with with each other, complete unity with each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you need to understand this morning that unity is something that God desires for us, but at the same time it is something that Satan dreads. It is something that Jesus prayed for before he went to the cross. And I am convinced that it is the one thing that will cause the world to look at us and realize that we have something different than they have. D.L. Moody, a a great preacher of the past, once said this. He said, I've never known the Spirit of God to work where the people of God are divided. Jesus said very clearly these words. He said, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. He said this when the Pharisees accused him of of casting out demons in the power of Satan. And Jesus said in response to that, any kingdom, any army, Any family, any spiritual family that is divided will ultimately come to ruin and will fall. And that definitely includes the body of Christ, the the family of faith. And make no mistake, Satan wants to divide. Satan's plan has always been to divide and conquer. Satan is the architect of division. He divided heaven when he rebelled against God and and he took a third of the angels with him. He divided the first family when he led Adam and Eve into rebellion against God and and they were cast out of, of the presence of God. He divided the first brothers against one another when Cain, out of jealousy, killed his brother Abel. Satan knows that if he divides us, He can conquer us, and because of that, he is going to do all within his power to divide us. That's why we are told in 
Proverbs 6 of the things the Lord hates, the things that are detestable to him. The very last one is this. One who stirs up dissension in the family of faith. It's the Satan wants to divide. He is the architect of division. But on the other side, God is the personification of unity. God is a beautiful picture of of what unity looks like. You see, the Bible makes it clear that, that God is one being. But that one being includes three co-equal persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This one God is unified in essence, but is distinct in personality. And we call this tri-unity the Trinity. The Father is not the Son The Son is not the Father, and the Spirit is neither. And yet these three persons make up one being, God, the Godhead. I like the way Tony Evans describes it. He said this. He said, it's like a pretzel that has three holes. Hole number one is not hole number two, and hole number two is not hole number three. But but the one pretzel with the three holes is tied together by the same dough. And the same thing is true with God. We have one God, three distinct persons, living and working together in complete harmony for all eternity. They are one, and yet they are distinct. They are unique. And here's what you need to understand. Unity requires uniqueness. It requires unique individuals. It requires unique personalities coming together as one. And the truth of the matter is you and I will never be more like God than when we are living in unity while understanding and embracing our uniquenesses. So so what is unity? Well, let me begin by telling you what unity is not. Unity is not uniformity. Remember, unity requires uniqueness. Uniformity is when everyone looks alike, acts alike in every area. But praise God, God didn't create us that way. He made us different. He made us unique. We have different abilities. We have different gifts. We have different um, personalities. Some of us fly by the seat of our pants. Some of us have to know every step in advance. Some of us are risk-takers. Some of us are cautious. Some of us never say a word while others of us never stop uttering words. We even talk in our sleep. Some of us are a little country. Some of us are a little rock and roll. And yet, even though we are ebony and ivory, we're to live together in what? Perfect harmony. You see, that is unity. We need to understand that our differences aren't liabilities. Our differences are assets. It's not our differences that divide us. It's what we do with our differences that divide us. And unity isn't simply being together in in the same building, in the same place at the same time. Just because we've come together in one building 
doesn't mean we're unified. And it doesn't even mean that we agree on every issue. Remember, we are to accept one another on disputable matters. And there are those matters that are not essentials. And we can disagree on those. So what is unity? Let me give you a simple definition. Unity is oneness of purpose. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Now, it's obvious that the church at Corinth had a difficult time with this one another. And so here's Paul. He's pleading with them. Live together in unity. Live together in harmony. But how do we do that? Paul said if we want to live together in unity, then we must be of one mind and and one purpose. In other words, our unity is based on having common beliefs and having a common purpose. And so our unity is based, first of all, on believing alike on the important things of of the faith. We are to be of one mind. And you need to understand that, that there are some essentials, some fundamentals, some core values that you and I have to agree on if we're going to walk through life united. That's true in government, isn't it? If there's one faction in government that says we need a totalitarian form of government and another faction that says, no, we need a representative form of government, those two are never going to be unified in what they do. We see that in business, don't we? I mean, if one person says, this is what we need to make, and another person says, no, this is what we need to make, then you're never going to be unified in your business plan. And it's certainly true in the church. Now, our beliefs and values as a church can be found on our website, if you're not a part of our church family, under the About tab. And you can look at those and you can see the essential beliefs that we have and the core values that we hold to. But here's what you need to understand. Our essential beliefs, our core values are based on a book. They're based on this book. You see, we believe that this book is truth. And I want you to hear what I just said. We believe this book is truth. I didn't say we believe this book contains truth. I didn't say this book has some truth in it. No, we believe that this book is indeed truth. Everything in it is truth. Here's what the Bible says about itself in 2 Timothy. It says, all scripture is inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us what to do right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And so the word of God tells us what is true. The word of God tells us what is wrong. And when we're wrong, it's going to correct us. And it's going to tell us how to do what is right. That's what the Word of God does. Now that word phrase, that that phrase inspired by God is one Greek word. It, It literally means come out of the breath, the mouth of God. God breathed. 
All scripture comes from the very mouth of God. Now our beliefs, our essential beliefs are, are theological in nature. What we believe about God, what we believe about man, what we believe about salvation, what we believe about the afterlife. Our core values are practical in nature. What God says about his church and how we are to be the church. And we have to be together on the essential beliefs and we have to be together on the core values if we're going to be unified. Let me give you an example. If we as a church believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation and you believe that there are many paths, many ways to salvation, we can be kind to one another, but we're never going to be unified. And so if you believe there are many paths to salvation, trust me, this church is not for you. You will never be unified with us here. When it comes to the family, one of our essential beliefs is that we believe that, that a marriage is between a man and a woman. We believe the Bible is crystal clear on that from Genesis through the words of Jesus to the words of the Apostle Paul. So if you believe that marriage is between anyone who wants to get married or, God forbid, even anything that wants to get married, we can respect one another, we can treat one another with dignity, but hear me, we are not going to be unified. And so if you believe that anyone who wants to should be able to get married, if you believe that a man should be able to marry a man and a woman should be able to marry a woman, you have that right. And we are going to love you and treat you with respect. And if anybody is ever rude to you from our church, you let us know. But we will never be unified on this. Because we are poles apart. And so if that's what you believe, then this church is not for you. you. You see, there are some essential beliefs that we must hold to. There are some essential core values that we must hold to if we're going to be in unity. But second, our unity is based on what we want to accomplish, our purpose, our mission. And so what is our purpose? Well, our purpose is the same as all God's people. It's the purpose given to us by Jesus himself. Our purpose is to glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission. This church family and every church family exist for that purpose. And we will never be unified as a church family until we all gather at the foot of the Great Commission and say, this is why we're here. We're here to accomplish this purpose. You see, unity is what we see when, when unique individuals come together, tied together by common beliefs with a commitment to a common purpose. And it is the commitment to that cause that is greater than our personal opinions and even our personal preferences that calls us to be able to walk together in unity. And so Paul says we are to live together in unity. Unity is, is focusing on having the same beliefs. It's focused on having 
the same purpose. So how do we have unity? And how do we get there? Well, let me give you three things. First of all, we've got to recognize that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives unity. Ephesians 4 verse 3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the what? The unity of the, the unity of the what? Spirit. Spirit. Yeah, it's up there. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. So who is the one who gives unity? The spirit gives unity. In other words, you and I have no hope of ever being unified apart from the Holy Spirit working in our lives to give us unity. That's where it all begins. And so that what that means is God's Spirit has to be living in us. We have to be a Spirit-born believer. So how does that happen? Well, Jesus, when he was speaking to Nicodemus, told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus said, how can I as a grown man enter into my mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus said, you don't really understand what I'm saying. Flesh gives birth to flesh. There's a physical birth. But the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. So don't be surprised when I say you've got to be born again. And then Jesus explained it. He talked about how when the Spirit of God comes to live in our life, we are changed, we're transformed. We may not be able to see the Spirit, but we certainly know that the Spirit is in us because He's changed us at the very core of who we are. You see, salvation is not ultimately the result of a decision that I make. Certainly, I have to make a decision. But salvation is the result of God's Spirit coming to live in me and making me new. And when I come to that point where I humble myself before God, acknowledging my sin, I cry out for mercy by trusting Jesus' death on the cross to save me. And I surrender my life to him. His spirit comes to live in us. And until that happens, we have no hope of living in unity. So the Holy Spirit is the one who gives unity. Second, we've got to work to maintain unity. Amos 3.3 says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Unity doesn't just happen. We have to agree to live in unity. We have to sit back and say, this is important. We're commanded to do this. And so, through God's grace and with God's help, through his indwelling spirit, we are going to do this. Paul said in Romans 12, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Do all that you can. Do everything within your power. Unity isn't just based on you. It's based on other people as well. But Paul makes it clear that you and I are to do everything that we can to live in unity. It's not always easy. But we need to do everything we can. And then third, we've got to be willing to deal with divisions. Titus 3.10 says, if people are causing divisions among you, give them a first and a second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. Does that sound harsh to you? Does it? But what the Bible is saying is this. That if someone 
is continually repeating the same pattern over and over again. Apart from the grace of God working in their life, they're going to continue to repeat that same pattern. And unless you're willing to allow that pattern to continue and the problems it causes to continue, you have to cut the cord. You have to cut the ties. You have to say, this isn't working out. I love you. I'm here for you. But until things change, we can't live in this one another type relationship. That's why in our membership covenant, by the way, for all of y'all who have gone through our membership class, one of the things that we covenant to do is to handle conflict biblically. And so when we have problems, we don't go and spread the news to everybody. We don't vent on Facebook. We don't shut down and walk away. We come face to face, hand to hand, not in combat. Face to face, hand to hand, and we resolve our problems. And so if we're willing to do that, and if people aren't willing to resolve those problems, we say, okay, then, then until things change, understand, I love you, but I can't be with you. Unless we're willing to do that, we're not going to have unity. So what is the result of unity? Two things I want to give you quickly. First, it results in spiritual maturity. Ephesians 4.13 says this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. And so what is Paul saying? Paul's saying that unity is one of the things that help us become mature in our faith. And until we understand biblical unity and we're working to live in biblical unity, we will never experience the maturity that God desires for us to experience as part of his family. But I would say the second is more important. Because the second result of unity is this. It reveals Jesus to the world. In John 17, Jesus said, I am in them, those who know me and you are in me the father may they experience such unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me you see what jesus is saying is that our unity is vital to the spread of the gospel the greatest advertisement for the gospel is not a billboard out on 378. It's not a Facebook ad. It's not a TV commercial. The greatest advertisement is the people of God, the family of faith, living in unity under the power of the Holy Spirit. The truth of the matter is a unified church can do the impossible. I read about a professor at an Ivy League school that they heard about a dinosaur that was alive in the rainforest of South America. And so he launched a scientific exposition to find out whether the story was true. And after several weeks, he stumbled across this pyg pygmy who was wearing a long cloth. And behind him was a 300-foot dead 
dinosaur. The scientist could not believe his eyes. And so we asked the pygmy, did, did you kill that dinosaur? And the rainforest native said, I sure did. Uh, the scientist said, how did you do it? This dinosaur is so big and, and you're so, well, you're, you're so small. He said, I did it with my club. The scientist said, goodness, how big is your club? He said, there's about 400 of us. <laughs> when we live together in unity, we can do the impossible. When we're divided, we won't accomplish anything. You see, every other one another that we've talked about so far is vital to our witness in the world. But this one, unity, we're never going to impact the world until they see this one. And so as the people of God, we've got to come together. Bound together by essential beliefs. Driven by a core purpose, not letting anything deter us. And so are you willing to live in unity? I want you to bow your head with me. I want you to close your eyes and with your head bowed and with your eyes closed. Before we pray anything else, I would be amiss. If I did not ask you, is God's spirit living in you? Have you been born again? Have you ever humbled yourself before the almighty God, acknowledging, admitting your sin, confessing it to him, trusting Christ alone to save you, surrendering your life to him? If you're here and you've never done that, and today you know you need to do that, I'm here to tell you the only way you know you need to do it is because God's Spirit is drawing you to Him right now. And so if you're here and you know you need Jesus in your life, you have a choice. You're going to walk out of this building and still not give your life to Jesus. Or you're going to humble yourself this morning and give your life to the one who created you and loved you so much that He died for you. So if you need to do that, I encourage you right now to humbly pray this prayer to him. Dear God, I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive my sins. I know I am a sinner. I've rebelled against you. Forgive me. I know you love me. I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. And right here, right now, I'm trusting you to save me. I'm giving my life to you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. And based upon your word, thank you for answering my prayer. Now with your head still bowed, your eyes still closed, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, would you just lift your hand up quickly for a moment so that I can see you and rejoice with you? Is anyone here? Anyone here? 
Okay, thank you. Keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. I want us to pray now as a body, family of faith, especially those of us who are part of the Northside family. I want us to pray that God will unify our minds and our hearts around the Word of God and the importance of the Great Commission. So join me in praying. Father God, we come before you believing with all of our heart that you have given us a word that is true in everything it says. And our desire, Father, is to let your truth guide us and direct us into what we believe, how we live, and what we do. Because, Father God, if we can somehow, some way, just become unified around this book, what it says, then everything else will take care of itself. Father, I pray that each and every one of us will, will search our own hearts, our own minds. Because, Father, I know there are times when I can become proud and I can get arrogant and I can get stubborn. Lord, I know that when I'm that way, I'm unwilling at times to, to even see what your word says. And so, Father, I pray that we will just swallow our pride. We will, Lord, rebuke our stubbornness. And we will just open our eyes to you. And, Lord, we'll make a commitment right here, right now to walk in unity with one another. So that the world will know who Jesus is. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.